Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we'll meet Maggie Reyes of Storm Lake. She is making a difference to many in her community through her work with Upper Des Moines Opportunity. But first, Anna Barker has been teaching students at the University of Iowa for the last 20 years. Courses in comparative literature, Russian literature, and more. In 2020, she partnered with the Iowa City UNESCO City of Literature to take her talents public. Through her classics readings, series, she has inspired hundreds of people to tackle War and Peace, Les Miserables, The Brothers Karamazov, and more. Her newest installment, 100 Days of Charming Rotten Scoundrels, kicks off on February 20th. Barker also writes a monthly column for the Iowa City Press Citizen in which she is exploring the intersection of history, culture, literature, art, and music. And she is with me now. Anna, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to go back to the beginning of this classic reading series. This was launched in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. How did it come about? Right. Well, the the world closed down on um, Friday, the 13th of March, 2020. And I immediately had an idea that we have to stay together, even if this will be a virtual gathering. Um, I texted John Canyon, the director of UNESCO City of Literature, and I just told him that I have this idea that we have to implement and we need to find ways of making it possible. And the idea, of course, was to read Boccaccio's Decameron, um, a book written during a pandemic when um, uh, there were European cities where half the population would be decimated by the plague. And um, it's an escapist book that keeps a small community together through storytelling. And um, I just (laughs) could not think of a better way to stay together. Um, Boccaccio's Decameron is a book of 100 tales. There are 10 narrators. Each narrator tells 10 tales. That's the title of the book. And so that's the, um, the 100 days model that we have followed for several subsequent, I call them tutorials, but they are really guided readings. And um, uh, that was super fun. Um, Of course, we tried to find a very workable platform to make this happen. And so we decided to go with social media because that that was the place where people gathered. Um, Something everybody could access pretty much. Yes, yes. Uh, We tried Twitter, but then we realized that my comments were becoming so lengthy that Twitter uh, was immediately a non-starter. And uh, we stayed with Facebook. Um, So it's the UNESCO City of Literature Facebook account. They opened a new page for each of the subsequent tutorials or guided readings. Um, And um, we launched. The funniest thing about the whole process was I did not have a Facebook account on April 1 when we started in 2020. I had no idea how the, the, the whole platform worked. And um, uh, I had a lot of help. And um, finally, by the time we were probably at the end of April, I, I mastered the art <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, of small and, um, and poignant um, commentary for each of the tales. Um, then I found amazing illuminated manuscripts that helped to facilitate the delivery of the material. And that has become the model for everything that I've done. Um, since 2020, um, there's always a substantial comment to the 
passage under consideration and a work of art, um, a painting, a sculpture, um, something that is relevant to that passage, and often music. And um, it has been um, just a delight to download my brain and share my passion for all of these uh, very substantial books with a wider audience. So, I mean, in some ways, this sounds like a book club. In some ways, this sounds like a class. So you have a a period of time and and basically an assignment for each day during that period of time. Obviously, some people won't get the reading done in that kind of a timely manner, but they can come back to your posts. Are you interacting with people every single day during that period? Yes. So um, the tutorial or this guided reading, or we can call it a a lovely 18th century salon. Uh, But instead of gathering in person, we gather virtually. And this gives everyone an opportunity to uh, go at their own pace. Let's give the example of War and Peace. Uh, We read three to four chapters a day for 100 days. The book consists of 365 chapters. How convenient. And uh, four volumes. The tutorial started with extensive historical notes, preliminary notes. I think I posted about 20 of them because we needed to get up the speed on the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the age of Napoleon, um, Napoleon as the first consul, Napoleon as the emperor, and just sort of get the readers to page one where his coronation as the king of Italy is discussed. So all that was... Historical knowledge <laughs> yes. that you're supposed to bring with you into this novel, Well, it's right? fascinating. The readers of these books, at the time when they were published, uh, would have been aware of this historical background. And so uh, my role is to make this as unobtrusive as possible so that readers would approximate the joy of the original readers of these books and the thrill and the excitement and the novelty without having these questions about why are they doing this? What are they saying? Why do they find this amusing? And so I'm in the background hovering, <laughs> just whispering that this this matters, this historical note is um, essential for our understanding of this conversation. Well, it also helps readers tackle these books that are really can be very intimidating. Yes. I mean, War and Peace is one of those books. I think a lot of people lie and say that they've read it. Right. Um, But a lot of other people have had it on their to-be-read list for their entire life, and they just never quite feel like they are up to the task. So in some ways, you're giving your readers Mm -hmm. the tools that they need to really engage. Right, right. And that's why I'm here, (laughs) to to make all of these tomes that... uh, we just keep on our desks um, that are, uh, I call them too long, too boring, and um, too outdated, Yeah, and make them relevant, exciting, and essential. Um, in so many ways, we live in this continuum of history, and uh, um, there are certain writers who can distill the experience of the moment in such a beautiful way that they become universally um, necessary distillations. We can still cheer on the characters of um, um, Victor Hugo because they're so relatable. Um, we we always exist in this moment where we, we would love to say this is unprecedented. <laughs> and yet, when we look, let's say, at French history of the late 18th and early 19th century, uh, this is a society that went through four revolutions in 100 years and a dozen changes of government, which were accompanied by just unimaginable disruptions of personal life. Um, and um, France lived up to this uh, 
to this uh, designation that it had in the 18th century as sort of the cultural um, flag bearer of Europe. And in the 19th century, then, all of these writers like Balzac and Alexandre Dumas and Stendhal um, gave us these lovely distillations of their experiences, which we can relate to today because we always live in an unprecedented time. And it's wonderful to sort of compare notes <laughs> with literary characters. And some of these literary characters are... Um, the ones that I've been friends with since my teens. So um, I'm just delighted to um, find readers who are willing to engage and uh, stay with these books for as long as it takes to get to the triumphant and not-so-triumphant endings. <laughs> when you started this, who did you imagine would read with you? I really had no idea. Um, UNESCO City of Literature is a network of cities around the globe, and um, they, some of them signed up um, as organizations, um, and then readers would find out about them. So for War and Peace, we had over a 1,000 readers from six continents, and we were desperately sending messages to Alaska saying that they have plenty of time to read this with us. <laughs> that, was, that was the joke of the group. Does anybody know anyone in Alaska we need? Because they were not represented? We need the final continent, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but... Um, uh, from Pakistan to Brazil, from the Republic of Georgia to France to pretty much every state in the United States, uh, we had readers who wanted to engage and um, have the sense of communal reading that is done in a virtual world. And that's the best we can do <laughs> in this day and age. We have, we're always in a hurry, as Pushkin said in his Eugene Onegin, um, he is in a hurry to live, and he's in a hurry to feel. <laughs> so that's us. Uh, we are we are constantly in a hurry, and so just taking the time off in our super hectic, super overscheduled lives to inhale this lovely piece of history is so gratifying. You mentioned the Decameron. Mm -hmm. You mentioned War and Peace. Mm -hmm. uh, on your list, the brothers Karamazov, Paradise Lost, Madame Bovary, The Count of Monte Cristo, and, and many other books. How have you chosen the books that you've been reading with people? Uh, there's some, some method behind the madness. <laughs> Obviously, they have to be books that I love um, because I need to communicate this love. And I need to stick to the format of commenting on a few chapters a day for 100 days. So you have to know the book well. Sometimes not so well. Mm. I actually find that commenting on a book that I've never taught before, like The Count of Monte Cristo, was the easiest. Really? Uh, because there's an element of novelty involved with me. I, I read it several times. I love the book. It has a lovely Napoleonic connection. Uh, which I shall not reveal because everybody has to read that book. Um, it's a book that is designated sort of as a borderline pop culture book of the 19th century, but it's astonishing if we look at this book in the context of sort of the proliferation of this brooding, dejected, Byronic hero that originates, of course, was Byron's child, Harold. Um, and to what extent this hero... Um, um, influenced other characters who came after him. Um, so that was fun. Um, 
Brothers Karamazov was a natural choice in 2021. It was the 200th anniversary of the birth of Dostoevsky, and I was the curator of an exhibition dedicated to the totality of his works that was presented um, in the fall of 2021 at the University of Iowa um, Main Library. And um, reading with um, scholars of Dostoevsky, of um, lovers of Dostoevsky, um, who are not necessarily in Iowa City, was a delightful way to extend my work uh, with the University of Iowa and the main library. Um, and we, we have to take a short break here. Okay. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Anna Barker. She is an adjunct assistant professor of Asian and Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Iowa, and she leads a classic literature reading group. 100 Days of Charming Rotten Scoundrels kicks off on February 20th, and you can join the group on Facebook. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me right now is Anna Barker. She is an adjunct assistant professor of Asian and Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Iowa. Over the last 20 years, she's taught many courses in comparative literature, Russian literature, and more. And back in 2020, she partnered with the Iowa City UNESCO City of Literature to create a classics reading series. She has inspired thousands of people to tackle some classic novels like War and Peace, Les Miserables, The Brothers Karamazov, and many others. Her newest installment, 100 Days of Charming Rotten Scoundrels, kicks off on February 20th. You can find that group and all the others on Facebook. And Anna, just before the break, we were talking about how you selected these specific novels to to read. And I want to ask more questions about that. But before we go there, let's go back in your life. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Soviet Union and um, with um, parents and grandparents who absolutely loved reading long books. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, I don't speak French, so there's my big confession for the day. <laughs> but I ended up teaching five French novels in the course of these tutorials. And um, the reason for that was my Russian grandmother idolized French literature, and she had collected works of all of the great French writers from um, Dumas to Maupassant to um, Flaubert, Stendhal. Um, And I happened to own all of her um, collected works of French writers. So before I would start um, any one of my um, delvings into French French literary masterpieces, I would actually um, post a photograph of my grandmother's books and uh, tell her, thank, thank you, Grandmother Ludmila, for in, instilling this, um, this love for a, a culture that was um, distant from, uh, from me, both linguistically and, um, and culturally. Um, and then love of German literature. We start the Charming Rotten Scoundrel tutorial was good as Sorrows of Young Werther. Um, that came from my college days. I read Faust when I was 17 
and uh, it had a lasting impact on my life. At some point, I will have to do a Faust tutorial, and it's one of those books that um, is too long, too um, too ancient, and too incomprehensible. But um, the the you lo- can guide us through it. The love <laughs> for Faust is still palpable in me. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about uh, the charming rotten scoundrels mm-hmm. that you've selected, because this, unlike um, many of your classics reading series installments, these this is a collection right. of short works. Right, right, right. Well, I this is the 13th tutorial, and I'm saying that we're going to have charming rotten luck uh, for 100 days. Um I wanted to offer my musings on all the great Dostoevsky novels that he wrote after his Siberian exile. Um, Start with a foundational novel such as Notes from Underground and then do the Great Five, uh, Crime and Punishment, The Idiot Demons, The Adolescent, and Brothers Karamazov one more time, um, assuming that readers would stay with me for four years and read all of the preliminary novels, which will expand their understanding uh, of Brothers Karamazov tremendously. Um, in order to understand Dostoevsky's Charming Rotten Scoundrels, we need to know the foundational books. And there's nothing more foundational in Russian literature than Pushkin's Eugene Onegin. And then, of course, the novel that in, that was inspired by Eugene Onegin, Lermontov's Hero of Our Time. Turgenev's Fathers and Sons is the direct instigation for Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. So thus, the, the sequential need to read Eugene Onegin, Hero of Our Time, Fathers and Sons, before on September 1, we read Notes from Underground and then dive into Crime and Punishment. Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther is a personal favorite since my teens. And this just happens to be the 250th anniversary of the composition of the novel. The, the young, dejected uh, Goethe, who didn't take his law exam, he never became an official lawyer, was living in Frankfurt with his mom and dad, and um, who was slightly disappointed that his Leipzig um, superb education did not result in a law uh, degree, um, wrote a book that influenced so much of 19th century literature. It's it's a book written by a 24-year-old who feels that he has a chip on his shoulder. And... Um, It's remarkable to what extent my University of Iowa students, who are in their 20s, um, respond to books that um, appeal to them because they are so honest about this age that they depict. Um, We have to remember that the characters of War and Peace and Brothers Karamazov are very young. They are in their late teens, early 20s. And um, students have often told me it's remarkable how they live in the 21st century in the Midwest, in the United States. And these characters who come from either small towns in 19th century Russia or from Russian aristocratic circles of the early 19th century um, are understandable to them to the extent where their contemporaries are not. And that is the beauty of great literature. Um, It speaks to us across languages, across cultures, across chronological divides, um, because it distills to us the the essence of what it means to be a human being in a very honest way. Um, These books are more honest with us than we can be in our day-to-day life, because being honest is so incredibly revealing. And... um, and, um, uh, we do not want to make ourselves 
as vulnerable to the world as uh, the great books of literature make their characters. And so there lies the mystery. <laughs> you you mentioned earlier um, when you were talking about The Count of Monte Cristo that it, it kind of has this mystique of being part of popular culture. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of these novels were very popular. Extremely. And, and remain well read, mm -hmm. especially by other writers. So when I read a, a, a classic work of literature, often I find myself saying, oh, that's why this contemporary author mm -hmm. does this. This is where this inspiration comes Absolutely. from. This is where this saying comes from. Mm -hmm. So do you find that with a lot of your readers, they're, they're like, oh, the <laughs> I've been saying this my whole life and it comes from this novel. Right, right. No, pop culture all of a sudden makes sense. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, yes, this is the first time where I'm taking four short novels, Sorrows of Young, They Are to Eugene and Yang, and Here of Our Time, and Fathers and Sons. They are all about 150 to 200 pages and putting them together into one scoundrelous tutorial. But last summer, I offered all of the works of Lord Byron, um, never to be attempted again, from uh, from his early poems to Child Herald and all the way to his uh, romp through European cultures in his version of the Don Juan or Don Giovanni um, narrative. This Byronic character uh, that that originated in um, the, was the pub publication of Canto 1 and 2 of uh, Byron's um, Child Herald is still with us today. And um, and we see it in um, in characters like Han Solo and characters like uh, the the brooding characters of Twilight. Um, it's fascinating how this Byronic character evolved into um, both Eugene Onegin in Pushkin and Pechorin in Lermontov, and he evolved into Rochester in Jane Eyre and Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. Uh, we see this character in, um, of course, Count of Monte Cristo in Dumas, and um, and on and on and on. Um, we have these characters in um, the works of um, Steinbeck, and we have these characters in the works of Hemingway. Um, they become eternal <laughs> because uh, this inward striving, this this brooding of the soul, is so modern. Um, we are no longer part of communal living. That was so medieval. Uh, we are part of um, the post-Enlightenment age, and we are the inheritors of the Romantic age, which makes the suffering of one individual soul the <laughs> cause for eternal celebration um, on the pages of countless 19th century novels. And the suffering of the individual human soul is appealing to us because we are those suffering individual souls. I'm talking with Anna Barker. We are talking about her classics reading series, her next series, or next installment in the series, 100 Days of Charming Rotten Scoundrels, kicks off on February 20th, and you can join the group on Facebook. And Anna, so many of these novels are Russian novels or written by Russian authors, and I'm guessing you read them in Russian originally. Um, uh, translations are often very different. Tell me how you navigate that and find a translation that, that really speaks to you. Um, at this point, I feel we must read the books and focus on our appreciation of the fact that they are available to us. I don't speak any Latin, and yet I uh, 
adore uh, Virgil's Aeneid. I don't speak Spanish, and I adore Quixote. Um, being in touch with another culture through translation is always a loss, and we can um, just stay with this sense of mourning that we cannot access, let's say, Gilgamesh in the original language, uh, which we don't speak any longer. Or we can celebrate the fact that through the medium of translation, these incredible masterpieces and really tributes to the human spirit are available to us. Um, Sometimes I am very specific about translation, a translation that I want my students to read. Um, and sometimes I just tell them, experiment with different translations, read the first chapter. If you feel that you have an affinity for the voice that is speaking to you through this mediated interaction with a book, then this is your translation. And um, um, there's no, there's no, mystery or mystique about this this translation process for me. If the voice speaks to the readers, then that is the voice that they should follow. And, um, and be in touch with something that uh, would be completely unavailable to them otherwise. You mentioned earlier that uh, in your tutorials, you are also bringing in artwork or music and and really trying to connect this work of literature with history, with culture. Mm -hmm. And that intersection of history, culture, literature, art, and music is something you're exploring it in your column for the Iowa City Press Citizen, but you've also said that you've really dedicated your career, your life to exploring this intersection. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about what that means to you. Um, literary works are just these pegs of a moment in time. Um, sometimes they, um, they deal with the past. Sometimes they deal with the current moment. So Stendhal's The Red and the Black is definitely a very 1820s, late 1820s book, pre-revolutionary book, pre-revolution of 1830 book that captures the angst of the moment. War and Peace is a retrospective book. It was written... Um, in the 1860s about events that happened 50, 60 years prior to the publication of the book. Um, authors choose their time and their calling. Sometimes it becomes completely accidental that they stumble on the subject. Tolstoy was not writing a book about Napoleon. <laughs> he ended up writing a book about Napoleon almost by chance. Um, these books capture the essence of the moment despite the fact that they perhaps are not writing about the moment. The Three Musketeers was written in the 19th century about events of the Thirty Years' War. And so when I offer these tutorials, I look both at the moment that produced the book and the historical period that inspired the book. And on the intersection of this, um, this joining of a culture that produced the book and the historical moment that is addressed in the book, we find some kind of truth. And, um, and that truth can be extremely elusive. Um, that truth can be very individual. But it's something that is um, extremely fruitful to explore and to try to come to terms with. And of course, all of these literary books are so much fun that they inspire music. <laughs> and so um, no other writer inspired as much musical adaptation as Pushkin. So when we'll be reading Eugene Onegin, of course, we'll be listening to arias and duets from um, Tchaikovsky's absolute masterpiece, um, Eugene Onegin. 
um, with Sarozovyang uh, Werther and Masne. There's uh, oh sorry of Goethe. There's of course the the wonderful opera Werther um, by Masne, and we'll listen to arias and duets from uh, from that opera. Um, Paintings. Um, Delacroix is one of those French painters who absolutely worshipped Byron. And so when I was offering the 100 Days of Byron, uh, we looked at so many um, depictions of Byronic characters in the paintings of Delacroix. He also had a huge affinity for Goethe. So if I ever offer Faust, (laughs) there'll be a lot of Delacroix um, versions of Faust. These literary works then exist in a span of historical moment. And the musical and um, um, artworks that are inspired by these works then become historical events in and of themselves. So trying to package all that into 100 days is a an impossible a task. Lot. <laughs> a lot. Well, and I also I look at this list and I think about the fact that you know all of all of the books on this list are written by men, mm-hmm. by written by white men, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they were written at a time when those were the only people who really had a voice, right. an opportunity right. to speak, to write, mm-hmm. to speak to the people. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, do you think about that as well? All of the people who lived in this time, were part of this culture, but were not, didn't have the opportunity to speak. With the exception of Dumas and Pushkin, they were Afro-French and Afro-Russian. Pushkin's grandfather was, um, a great-grandfather, came from Africa. Mm. He was brought to the court of Peter the Great from um, Istanbul, and he became a brilliant naval general. Peter the Great loved Ibrahim Ganibal, Abraham Hannibal, that was the name of Pushkin's African great-grandfather, that he bestowed um, land holdings on him and married him into the imperial court. So Pushkin uh, would write fondly about his Africa and his African heritage. Alexander Dumas has the most incredibly Napoleonic background. His father was the um, son of a French aristocrat and a Haitian slave woman. The last name Dumas comes from this this uh, slave. And um, Alexander Dumas' father was the general Thomas Alexander Dumas, who served under Napoleon, uh, both in Europe, but also during the uh, campaign in Malta and in Egypt. So those of you who watched the Ridley Scott uh, film Napoleon, when you see an African general who is accompanying Napoleon, that is the father of the future author of The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo. There's wonderful biography written about him called The Black Count, which I can't recommend enough. Anna, we are out of time. We could we could talk so much longer, but thank you so much for sharing this with me and, and with all of your readers. Let's do it again. Anna Barker is adjunct assistant professor of Asian and Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Iowa. Her next classic reading series installment is 100 Days of Charming Rotten Scoundrels, and it kicks off on February 20th. You can join the group on Facebook. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Storm Lake is the most racially and ethnically diverse community in the state of Iowa, and it is thriving. But like everywhere, there are people in Storm Lake who need help, and many of those people turn to Upper Des Moines Opportunity Incorporated, a community action agency. CAAs were created in 1964 to help fight the United States' war on poverty, and at the heart of this particular community action agency is a woman with an incredible gift for helping others. Her name is Maggie Reyes. Maggie was born in Chicago but spent much of her childhood and young adult life in Mexico, When she moved back to the United States with her ex-husband at the age of 24, they were drawn to Storm Lake by the promise of work at Tyson Foods. They spent 10 good years working there, returned to Mexico for five years, and then came back to Storm Lake in 2014. And that's when Maggie really found her calling in working at Upper Des Moines Opportunity. Maggie Reyes is now the agency's outreach specialist for Buena Vista County, and she's on the line with me now. Hello, Maggie. Hi, beautiful. How are you? I am good. It's so nice to talk to you. And I want to ask you, because you have lived in many different places in Mexico and in the United States, but you have such love for Storm Lake. What makes this town so special? Um, I don't know. I just, I love so much. I love and respect my beautiful town. I always say that my God sent me to this beautiful place and this is my home, and I love Mexico too, but also I, this is my home, and I love to, I love my job, I love my town, I love what I do, and, and I'm very thankful to be here and, and serve my community. There are so many things that, that Storm Lake has done over the years to embrace diversity and welcome immigrants to the community. That's part of why Storm Lake is thriving. It it is also a community where, for example, the police force reflects the diversity of the community. And that's that's one of the things that helps people feel safe in Storm Lake. I I have read that you like to um, take selfies with police officers in Storm Lake and, (laughs) and connect with people in that way. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh my God. I love, I love and respect so much our police officers, Chief Chris Cole and all his beautiful team. My police officers know me and, and they know that I have so much love and respect for them. And they come also and they support me if I need help with something, if I need, uh, like to move something, if I receive donations, if I need donations, they always support me every year with, um, gloves of love. They, uh, my firemen come, my police officers come, and we take selfies all the time. And it's just beautiful when Chief comes also. He just came a few weeks ago, and we had our food pantry, and he just came to, to help us. And, to, and he was carrying boxes to the people that they're not able to, that they have a hard time, they have health issues. And, and he was just serving. He came here at 8 o'clock, and he said, Maggie, I just came to, to help you. So that's beautiful. That's how I have all my police officers also working with me as a team. And that's why we are beautiful. I just love how much love and support we have for to help others. And one of them are my Storm Lake Police Department, my fire department. I love them and I respect them so much. You have said that you feel like you can help 
every person who comes through the door at Upper Des Moines Opportunity. Tell me a little bit about the kind of people that do come through that door. What are people looking for? Uh, most of the people that come here to my beautiful town is um, like it's people that they they are in process of of immigration. Uh, they they're looking for a better life, and but they're they they need to start from zero. Yeah. Like one one that I did uh, a lot of time ago, and that's how I always remember when I start to, and and that's why I I like to know the family. I invite them to my office. We talk about the situation to see how I can help them. I love that from my work. I am able to help uh, people that uh, they have. Um, they are from United States, but also I am able to serve people from another country that we have a lot of diversity here in this beautiful town. And and there's people that they're having uh, health problems, immigration problems. So we just talk up, uh, about the, their situation and we have different programs to help them and guide them to different agencies so they can help them. You mentioned your food pantry, so that's a big part of the work you do. What are some of the other services that that you're able to offer? My like my food pantry is today, and I have a line of people already waiting outside. Uh, they start making a line since seven in the morning, and I I have uh, donations from Hy-Vee, Walmart, Fairway. My beautiful community just stops and brings me food. Uh, everybody gets together to do fundraisers and, and support me. Uh, that's my number one, because today we serve from 120, 150 families. And it's just beautiful to be able to do that. And I have another programs like energy assistance, where we help families with the gas bill. Uh, that's by appointment. And I do a, a one every half an hour. Um, we do, uh, we have the baby room. We have the toy room, the birthday room. Uh, we have adopt a family for Christmas that uh, we adopt like 200 families and 80 seniors. Uh, we have uh, the housing program. We have uh, programs for my elderly people. So yeah, I just I just love that we have so many options to to help them. You mentioned the adopt a family program at the holidays and. I am familiar. A lot of organizations do these adopt-a-family programs, but usually they're focused on families with children. Why do you include seniors in your program? Oh, my God. It's because, you know, I love my seniors. And every time when they come, uh, most of them are alone. Uh, They have so many health problems. Uh, They receive Social Security or disability, but also they have to pay their rent, their bills their medical bills, their medicine, and they don't have enough money left for food. So that's why when they come, I love to, I have my special day for them. It's on Mondays by appointment because I don't want them to be waiting a long time outside. They come and we help them. They have their choice. They can pick whatever they need. And also um, like for Adopt-A-Family for Christmas, I include them because they don't have anybody and I don't like them to feel alone. I want them to feel that they have another people that they care for them. We love them. We respect them. 
and that's a number one that that we did. We started with 30 seniors, and now we are almost in 100 that we adopt every year. Oh, wow. Yes, it's beautiful. You clearly work with a lot of uh, organizations. There are the agencies that, that are designed to assist people, and you can help people take advantage of those opportunities. You work with a lot of local businesses in making their donations. But I've also heard that you've built a really strong personal network. And if there's something that you need, you just put it up on Facebook and, and people respond. Tell me about that. I don't know how I started that beautiful. I just, I, there was, it was something that I wanted to share with everybody. So I start sharing, I asked permission to my, my boss. I start sharing all my work on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. And I just, I started doing that. That's how I start taking selfies with everybody, yeah. like with my police officers, my fire department. Uh, with my beautiful people that from the community that comes and brings donations. I just wanted to share uh, my work so I can take the word out and I can receive more support. And and it's been working. I have so many uh, people that support me, that, that follows me, that guides me. And, and, and it's just beautiful. If I need something, I just post it on Facebook and, and less than 20 minutes, I have it. And it's just beautiful. And also, that's why I want to share what I do. So my people see that I'm doing my work, and that I'm helping others and I'm doing it right. So that's why I love to share that. You not only help people, but you give other people the opportunity to help people. And that Mm -hmm. seems like a very powerful gift too. Do you see that in in the people who connect with you? Yes, like I love that. Uh, So many, that's why sometimes I don't, I love to, I want to share that everybody, it's not just me, everybody is helping me. I can do my work without all the people that support me. Like right now, I am um, talking to you, beautiful, and I have my beautiful team working outside. I have my, my all my volunteers that come and support me, and they're receiving donations. I have um, another of my beautiful volunteers that that went to the bridge. That's another agency that they support me with meat, also, and and it and then the bridge receives the meat from Tyson Food. So it's just we are different. All of us we get together so we can we can do it and help others. Right now, I have my volunteers receiving donations, getting ready the food pantry, so we can just uh, start helping. And the people that I have outside, it's people, it's people from United States. I have people from from I, Hispanic people. I have people from Cuba, from Venezuela. Like all my volunteers, they just come and say, "Maggie, we want to help you. What do you need?" And and that's just beautiful that that I love that I have so much support so I can continue doing my beautiful work. Now, I've made Storm Lake sound a little bit like a a paradise. You you have too in in some ways, (laughs) but... Not not everyone approves of the work that you do. And, And you have shared a story in the past about being out for lunch at a local business and encountering a, an older resident, a veteran, 
who first he asked his companion who you were and his companion said, she's the one that works at Upper Des Moines where they give all of the free food to the lazy people. And Uh I'm sure that that hurt to hear, but you also took it as an opportunity to educate. Tell me what happened. Okay, so yeah, that it was a it was a place that we had here uh, uh, for veterans, and I love them and I respect them. So that day, I came to to buy some lunch for us, and 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 it's when some of them, one of them mentioned that who who was I, and and then the other person said that it's where they give the the food to the lazy people, free food to the lazy people. And I just, I just look and I said, sir, um, if you want to come to my beautiful, to my office so I can show you and explain to you my beautiful work, I'll give you a tour and, and show you and explain to you. And he said, no, I will never go there. But I just leave it like that because I am very respectful person too. And, but, but he came two days after he came to the office. And I was very happy to see him, and I just show him what we have because he was he was a veteran and he was in need, but he was very proud to to do it. So I welcome him and I show him what we have. He didn't. He was very surprised to see how many donations we have. I said, "Sir, if you want to do it in private, that's okay. I I want to do it like you want. I want you just to take whatever you need, but I want to help you, please." And he will continue coming. At the beginning, it will be in private. But and then he will be the first one on the line all the time. When it was COVID, I had to do my food pantry outside and serve everybody to their car. So he was the first one on the line always. And I love that because yeah. he, he, he didn't care that they will see him or something. He was there. And I will serve him. But And then uh, it was like three weeks that he didn't come. And and I and one day I heard on on the radio that he passed away, and that broke my heart, so because I get very close to my people, I love them and I respect them, and and the thing is that one day I received a phone call from his son, and he told me how he talked about me, and he called me to say thank you because I made his dad to feel special. You taught him that it wasn't something to be ashamed of, to need help. Yeah, I know, beautiful, exactly. That's why I have so many families that they they feel like that when they come. They feel embarrassed, and I was one of them because I always share my story, how I came to Upper Des Moines. When I came back on 2014, I was having a hard time, and I was struggling, looking for a job for three months. And, and and then I one of my beautiful ladies here sent me to Upper Des Moines asking for help. And I said, ma'am, I don't want help. I just need a job. And she said, Maggie, please go to Upper Des Moines and they will help you. And that's how I came here asking for help. And, and, and they, they were looking for a bilingual person. And I applied for the job and they called me the next week. And I've been here for nine years. And... As long as my God gives me life to be here, beautiful. And you have had a lot of opportunities to move on in the last nine years. Do you feel like this? I mean, a lot of people feel like this is your true calling. Do you feel like this is your true calling, your purpose? Yes. Yes, beautiful. I 
I've been having another opportunities to go to work to another place, like go back to Tyson. Um, maybe I will work in, uh, my kids go to St. Mary's Catholic School. There was a position there to, to go and work, and they invite me to. Um, there was a position open to work at the Storm Lake Police Department, too. And, and I love my police officers. I wanted to go and work there. I was going to apply, but the thing is that I just, I'm very faithful to my job. I love what I do. And it, it doesn't matter. It's not because of the income. I just, I learned to live with what I have. And I'm very thankful for what I have. And I just, I'm very loyal to my job and I love it. And that's why I say that I will continue here and, and continue serving my community because it's the best for me. Maggie, thank you so much for talking with me and for sharing your story. I appreciate you, beautiful. I'm very thankful that you thought about me and that you look in my beautiful work. And I appreciate that so much. And that's what I will continue doing here in my beautiful Storm Lake. Maggie Reyes is Outreach Specialist for Buena Vista County with Upper Des Moines Opportunity Incorporated. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. We get production assistance from Kate Perez and Maddie Willis. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.